0: Welcome to Knot Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we dive into today's show, I want to be sure that you know about my online creative community, The Heroine's Knot. Every week, we explore a new heroine's tale and search out its archetypal and personal meaning. This is the space to deepen your own creativity and build lasting relationships with wise souls seeking both individual growth growth and collective healing for our society and for our more-than-human world. Learn more at my website, marisagoudi.com. Season 3, Episode 5, The Power of Pillow Talk, the story of Queen Maeve. In this episode, I will share with you the first story from Irish mythology's greatest epic, the Tawn Bocuña. And then with my guest, Lee Shea McDonough, we'll discuss all the ways it still matters. Our guest is the founder of Coach with Clarity, where creative, innovative professionals discover how to combine their talents, experience, and intuition with a powerful coaching methodology so they can create a flexible, meaningful business that serves their people and supports their families without selling their souls. Lee is also the host of the Coach with Clarity podcast and author of the number one Amazon bestseller act on your business, braving the storms of entrepreneurship and creating success through meaning, mindset, and mindfulness. After over a decade as a clinical social worker and public health professional, Lee became credentialed as a coach through the International Coach Federation and now provides ICF-accredited initial training and continuing education for intuitive, innovative coaches. One quick announcement. I'm offering a free workshop called The Gift of the Shapeshifter. How an ancient myth of transformation can connect you to the wild heroine within. I'll share a folkloric story of shapeshifting, and you'll have a chance to do some myth work of your own, reflecting on this age-old story of transformation and how it can help you navigate the changes of today and tomorrow. Join us for this free event held on March 1st and 6th. Get all the details at marisagoudi.com or check the show notes for details. Well, I am so excited to have Lee on the show with me today and to explore this story of Maeve and all the other connections I know we'll be making along the way. But as is our way on work Storytelling, first we ask the story to speak for itself and then we'll explore all the ways in which it still matters. Fado, Fado. A woman and her husband lay in bed after the rest of the royal household was asleep. King Alil rolled over, ready for a bit of pillow talk. You've done well, haven't you, my queen? Queen Maeve smiled. Yes, husband, it's been a long, rich life, and it's not done yet. Alil got a strange look in his eye. Of course, but particularly since we wed. She arched a brow. Hmm, yeah, I've got a good, steady man to share my bed, if that's what you mean. Not that I was lacking in lovers before, of course, but to rule beside a king such as you an equal in every way is truly something. Now, maybe it's just because this was necessary to move the story forward. Maybe it was because Alil wasn't really a match for Maeve, though she thought he had every quality on her non-negotiable list. He was generous, brave, and without jealousy or fear. Or maybe it was because he truly was the perfect match for her. Whatever the reason, Alil pressed the issue. Well, of course, he said, but I wouldn't count those womanly assets you took to our union as equal to what I brought. Maeve sat up in bed and turned on her husband. What are you talking about, boyo? She went on to list the men-at-arms, the vast lands, and the fat herds she had brought to their marriage. She reminded Alil that she was the daughter of the High King of Ireland and that she was gifted her own province and that all of Connacht would rise when she lifted her hand. He reminded her that he too was a king's son. My elder brothers each were warded their kingdom, so I came in search of you, the only queen in Ireland with your own lands. With my pedigree and my wealth, who was a better mate for you, the daughter of the king of all Ireland, than I? Maeve leapt up, and she may well have stomped her foot, too. You've got a lot of nerve, mister, insinuating that I needed you. I, a sovereign in my own right. I, a woman who has never had one man without another standing in his shadow. I, a woman who will take a moonblood piss in a field before a battle and create such a great gulch as you'd see it there in the landscape for a few thousand years you are the one who moved up in the world, not the other way around, darling. Now don't let the insults fool you. These two were well-matched. Alil rose to meet her and captured her in a kiss. Passionate tempers subsided into passionate lovemaking, but the debate raged even after their bodies were sated. They awoke every single member of the household to help with the accounting of their worldly goods and vassals. By the next dawn, they had gathered every soldier, every bit of gold and bronze, every bolt of cloth, every mare, sow, ewe, and heifer, and all their mates and offspring, too. The rows of belongings and assets were equal, down to the last pot and jug, save one. A white bull had been born in Maeve's herd, but he refused to be mastered by a woman, so he moved over to join Alil's cattle. This was the deciding factor. Maeve was furious. Allil tried to hide his grin. Having seen similar tempests before, McCraw, Maeve's most faithful messenger, whispered in her ear, I've seen a brown bull that's finer, my lady. He goes by the name of Don Cunha, and he lives in the house of Dara McFierma in Ulster. The queen grinned. Excellent. Go to him and ask that I may have the loan of the bull for one year and a day. Offer him 50 heifers as payment. If he should accompany you, promise him a tract of land that would stretch from my throne to the sea. You can also offer him the friendship of my own thighs. And so, Mehra was accompanied by a delegation of eight men. They went and put the offer before the chieftain in Ulster, who heartily agreed to deliver the bull and take up Maeve's friendly bonus offers, too. Everyone in Dara's court celebrated with a toast, and then another, and another, and another. When Maeve's messengers finally got to bed, they'd lost any trace of tact or sense they'd been born with. One confided in the other. Ah, well, tis nice the old man agreed. Our Maeve would have forced him to give that bull over in one quick and mighty raid. As the two laughed, the head of the chieftain's household entered through a side door. He asked them to repeat their boasting and no smarter than any pair of drunkards usually were, they did. When the messengers awoke the next morning, their sore heads were made worse by the news that neither the bull nor his master were coming with them. They returned to their queen and her king, empty-handed. Maeve shook her head, understanding just how the situation had gone down. She sighed. Why am I not surprised? Though she didn't say it aloud, you could. Definitely hear the unspoken phrase, typical men, hanging in the air. Well, my beloved Maeve, said Alil, your name does mean she who intoxicates, does it not? She looked at her husband with a wry expression. Indeed, she muttered. Let's imagine she drank deep from the goblet at her elbow and said in a voice that echoed through the feasting hall, Are we up for a battle, then? In full warrior's regalia, Maeve led the charge to Ulster in an open chariot. Her husband was on one side, her favorite lover, Fergus, on the other. Now the rest of the story is a complicated one, full of battle, blood, destruction, curses levied, and prophecies upheld. Maeve would have her advantages in this battle. A sister sovereignty goddess, Macha, had doomed the men of Ulster to fall with the pains of a woman in childbirth in their most desperate hour. It would have been an easy victory for the raiders of Connacht if not for one great Ulster warrior who was immune to such curses. Cuhullin's stories belong to another day, but for the purposes of this one, know that he may have fought off the invading armies, but Maeve eventually managed to steal the bull herself. When they all got back home to the West, the great white bull who had once deserted Maeve's herd for Alls fought against the great brown bull of Ulster. Those two animals killed one another. You could say that all the battling and bloodshed was in vain, save for the fact that it's been a story that's been told, shared, and remembered for millennia. And we know that stories are what weave communities, cultures, and collective memories together. And, of course, it meant that Maeve and Allo's fortunes were, at last, equal. And, for as long as their ill-fated marriage lasted, they could at least get some sleep. Shanae, that's my story.
1: Oh, I loved hearing that story. It's one thing to read it. It's Mm -hmm. another to have it read to you. Oh, So the imagery of the story just came alive in my mind's eye. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. And yes, actually, a very close version
0: to this was in my book, The Sovereignty Knot. So I've never actually had the opportunity to read this one out loud before. So it's exciting. So thank you.
1: Oh, my gosh, I'm excited to have been a part of it. Yeah. Well,
0: when you and I were chatting, I knew that you and I would have a fabulous conversation on the show. And I had asked you, because I know you've spent some time with Irish myths, Irish stories, Irish goddesses. And you mentioned to me that you were intrigued by the Morrigan. And I had said to you, hmm, well, she's a tricky Mm -hmm. one, that one, especially when it comes to storytelling. So I tried for some time to get her attention or to ask, like, is there, could I, would you, is there one? Would you mind? Maybe she wanted nothing to do with me but Maeve has a very close connection to her in that both of them have a similar origin story in County Roscommon and i think there's that spirit of the really bold and fiery feminine that really comes through both of them as well as some death destruction very difficult choices this story is certainly one of a celebration of a difficult woman
1: yes. right i Everything always works out as it's meant to. And when I read the story, I was like, oh, this is a juicy one. This is one that we are going to have so much fun exploring the dynamics of the relationship and what it says about power and independence and autonomy and and how two very powerful people can come together and create one unit in the relationship without losing their own sense of self. But that's really what mm-hmm. came through for me, especially. Yes. Yes.
0: Of course, I was telling the story in context of sovereignty. So I'm glad, I'm excited to hear that one really came through in that way. But it felt so right to have you on to talk about this, knowing that you have your background as a therapist, and certainly I have such depth in, when it comes to relational healing, and that you also are such a powerful entrepreneur who speaks about building businesses, training coaches, helping people to really step into their own power so that, well, I want to say that so perhaps a relationship doesn't need to be the only defining factor because putting wealth into the hands of women in particular and individuals allows for so much more freedom so that then folks can make choices based on... Love and passion and inner knowing rather than obligation or those old habits of of our traditional patriarchal culture. Yes.
1: I think in the story, too, what came through for me is that even though there was this, we'll say power struggle, still there was an undercurrent of love as evidenced by the fact that their argument led to lovemaking and then led to, no, we're going to account for everything. We're going to have an end to this dispute. We're going to see who won, so to speak, but it was still in the context of love of lovemaking of joy. And so I appreciated that it added something to that power dynamic piece and also maybe offered a contrast to what women traditionally have experienced in a patriarchal society where it's not necessarily coming from a place of like recognizing like of true equality, but where the woman is subjugated and whatever she brings to the relationship, whether it's financial, emotional, the skills she brings have historically been muted or silenced in favor of mm-hmm. her husband, her father, her brother, who whatever man is in her life. And so I just thought it was an interesting counterpoint. And we can really look to Maeve as someone who's like, oh, no, that's not how this works. We are of equal stature. In fact, I might even be a little above you. You may have been the one who improved your stature by being with me. And so I just love the way it kind of flips the traditional patriarchal paradigm on its head.
0: Right. And that this story survived through so many different patriarchal systems to make it to us today so that we could keep looking at it and turning the lens. Right. Because, of course, as much as the Celtic age, there was a great deal of equality for women compared to other places. And yet it still was not a halcyon age of true equality. Then, of course, the story would have been written down by Christian monks. Mm -hmm. You know, they would have taken this. Of course, they would have shifted it in some ways. And in my version, I take away a little bit of Maeve's villainy, perhaps, because I want us to understand her because we do understand her as saying staking a claim is hard work and you cannot always do it with your inside voice. Yes. And, but knowing that this went through the hands of the Christian scribes and they still give us this version and this much power and still give us the moonblood piss. Like (laughs) that is, that is part of the story. I did not make that part up and you could still go see it today. And that's of course why these stories are so remarkable is that we still get these places are like, did they just say that? Oh, they did. Yeah okay, I get this as a modern woman. And I can see it how it still wove through these ancient ways of being.
1: Yeah. You hear a story like that and you start thinking about your own relationships. I started thinking about mine and I Mm -hmm. feel very fortunate that I really do feel like I have partnered with my equal. Now, my husband, Patrick, Patrick McDonough, good Irish name. He would say, "Oh, no, I definitely married up, which I appreciate. It's very flattering. But truly, I feel like we are well matched. I feel very fortunate in that way. Mm. And even with that, when I think about the twenty four years now that we've been together almost we'll have been married for twenty two this summer, there were many power struggles, especially early on in our relationship as we tried to learn how to, come together as one and still honor our own independence. I think now, Mm -hmm. 20 some years in, we kind of have it figured out. I mean, there's still challenges, don't get me wrong. But it's taken almost that long, though, to figure out how to have this duality within this union. And that's really kind of what I was sensing in the story. And especially at the end, when the two bulls fought each other and then killed themselves. But honestly, that's now all of a sudden we're equal. And it's like, oh, what do we have to sacrifice in order to be a part of an equal relationship? And what does that sacrifice look like? What mm. am I willing to give up? And what what is sacred to me? What will I always hold on to regardless?
0: Oh, I love how you read that into this story. Cause of course it's easy to get swept up and this is the first mm, 10 pages of a much, you know, of, mm. of an epic, right? It led to an entire battle, which, of course, took over the entire country. And we're not meant to be looking at that from that great death and destruction way. When you take it to say, no, what sort of sacrifices have we made? Whether it's it's moving across the country for a spouse or whether it's saying, okay, I'm going to be the one who stays home instead of you so that we can raise our kids and manage all these lifestyle things we need. It really is that small and that great
1: because that's what makes our relationships, right? That's what makes a lifetime together. That's right. And- I know for myself, I did not realize the extent to which I would be making sacrifices for the sake of my marriage, nor did I realize the gifts I would receive from my marriage either. So it goes both ways. But I was fairly young. I was 20 when I met my husband. We married at 20. I was 22. He was 24. So we were babies. We were so young. Yeah. And he was in the military. He was in the Air Force. I met him when he was in dental school. So he was in an inactive status at that point. But not only was I marrying him, I was marrying into the Air Force. And that required a great deal of sacrifice on my part. I didn't have a say over where we lived for the first 15 or so years of our marriage. I didn't necessarily have a say over what career I might be able to have wherever we landed. And so those were things that maybe conceptually I sort of understood when I got married. I didn't really understand, though, what that meant practically until I was in it. And so I think part of our marriage has been learning how to navigate not having the same level of control that maybe other couples do because of the nature of my husband's job. And then when he got out of the Air Force in 2015, It was kind of unspoken that, okay, now this is really going to be my time to make some decisions about what I want to do. And please don't misunderstand me. I had a wonderful career even while he was in the military. I was able to get my degrees in social work and public health. I was able to get licensed as a clinical social worker. I worked as a therapist. I had some wonderful experiences. But I didn't move into entrepreneurship until he was out of the military because that's the point at which we had some stability in terms of where we would live, we could lay down roots, and that was when I really felt safe to explore and I am so grateful that he's encouraged that as well as he's also bought his own business and kind of expanded himself. And so now we're at the stage in our relationship where we're both expanding. We have very separate interests and different businesses, but we know how to come back together. Mm.
0: Oh, Lee, thank you so much for just for sharing your story of that. And it feels really important as a wife in the in military, there's so many common elements here too. What brings up for me a lot in terms of family of origin stuff, is that concept of girl money that mm-hmm. seems, seems to come up sometimes, mm-hmm. especially when I think you and I are both children of the '70s, and so you know, knowing that we were raised by baby boomers, and it was perhaps our moms who were the first ones to go out and have a job full time or part time or whatever, and then we're being raised into like, yeah, go forth, you are you are ready, you straight A student, go and rock the world and get your degrees and all the things that were expected of our Gen X generation. But I know I've still carried around that sense of being in that first generation that might perhaps be making your own money mm-hmm. to make it on your own. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a situation as a mom, as I am in our house, where it's like, yeah, my husband's the one who's, who goes off and has the full-time gig. By the way, Michael Patrick Gowdy. So I, I <laughs> see the Patrick in, in our, in our relationship. That's funny. My, mine
1: is Patrick <laughs> Michael.
0: So there you go. Oh, that's hilarious. There it is. There it is. <laughs> And that sense of, yeah, I've been home with kids for 13 years while running my own business because I, I just chose to leave my career in academia because it wasn't possible to juggle all the things. Not having been an equal earner has been hard for me over these last 13 years and looking to say, well, and I actually had a coach who said once to me, well, it's okay. You just need to make mom money. I think he thought it was being helpful. And it wasn't because it actually echoed exactly my family of origin story, which maybe is a whole separate code. Because if everyone could have seen Lee's face right then, it was pretty stunning. But so that really brings it up for me in this story of that sense of, yeah, she came into this and had her own wealth and had her own riches. And in this case, it was equal. But even if it isn't, because there's this, you know, the labor is equal, but perhaps the cash is not equal, having to hear her prove herself is something I've done, I think, in my own shadow space of saying, but wait, I am working really hard. And even if it is only this much, it still counts. Oh, but what if it's only girl money? What if it's only mom money?
1: Yes. And now all of a sudden we're creating a power structure within money. Whose money is the real money? Whose money is the play money or the extra, the mom money? Yeah. And the look on my face when you described what that coach said, it's just what a patronizing Thing to say that somehow what you contribute financially, yes, but then what that represents, it's not as necessary. It's not as vital. And that's painful. That gets to the very heart of who we are. Right. And said in the spirit of, hey, take the pressure off. If you don't
0: have to pay the mortgage this month, what happens if what you're doing is offering summer camp and everybody's favorite organic groceries, opposed to bare minimum? Like, It's that, but it's still all the ways in which the patriarchal society we're speaking of for Maeve or the Christian scribes is not past tense. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's like, I can't believe I have to reiterate that or I choose to reiterate it so often, but it's because we still have to reiterate it. I'm just coming off of the weekend of seeing my 13-year-old in the middle school play. She was the stepmother in Cinderella. And everyone was fabulous. It was a ninety percent female cast. All of the leads were played by girls. And it was that wonder. I'm like, are we watching this with irony now? or is are we watching this with nostalgia? Does nobody notice? Are we still irritated and with is our feminism getting like kicked up? or are we just has this story colonized us so much? Is anyone thinking about it? Or does it even matter? Because we're just so excited that those kids are just doing such an amazing job. And I was just thinking about it today in context with this story and that sense of when you look at, well, the stepmother is that evil, wicked voice Mm -hmm. in that play. Cinderella is the virtuous feminine. Those are stories we've held. Maeve, of course, is perhaps older but is not as well known globally as the stories we were given by Grimm and Disney and yet she's of course perhaps though a difficult icon of womanhood much more holistic and much more real
1: yes to your point if we want to look at a real woman we have to take it all we have to take the virtuous and the villain We have to take what we aspire to be and our shadow side as well. The shadow side is so critical to who we are and who we can become and how it shows up in in the work we do, in the way we love, in the way we parent. And so to exclude that, to focus only on the virtuous, to focus only on the Cinderella and to shun the evil stepmother is to deny a part of ourselves because we all Are capable of being the evil stepmother we all have that side and then the question becomes how does that side serve us and how does it get in our own way how does it allow us to tap into our strength and our boundaries and to demand what we want but then when does it get taken too far and we start infringing on someone else's autonomy so again Even in these stories where we've got the wicked stepmother, the wicked queen, there's a kernel in there of of desire, of, of what we can become when we use that force to serve all. And then there's also, of course, the warning of what happens when we use it only to serve ourselves. Yes.
0: And I just am always curious where we are culturally and how many people are reading in the holographic levels of the shadow and the light and the, all the aspects of the feminine when ultimately many perhaps are walking out of there saying, oh, she was saved by the prince. Yes, Love, love conquers all yes. eventually, which that being actually tying us back to very similar reflections you had from the Maeve story, but was anybody saved in Maeve's story by anybody else? I don't think so.
1: No, not really, not really. Yeah. So it is a story, again, about how do we save ourselves? How do we honor our individualism while also being part of a partnership, a family, Mm -hmm. a community? What does it look like to be present for others without sacrificing ourselves?
0: Right. And that's such the perennial question. And I understand Mm -hmm. that it's very much, it's a question of women who have the luxury to overgive in the ways that, many, and I'll speak particularly of probably white middle class women in America who have this option of saying, oh my God, I get the kids to soccer and then to theater practice and this and that. And that's where a lot of conversations are had around that sense of maintaining your individuality and your sense of self in the midst of the great blur of the daily routine. And that's a lot of where I wrote my book from. But I know in the four or five years since, I keep pulling back the lens to keep looking and saying, I wrote that book very much from where I was living. I couldn't have written it from anywhere else. And in having done so, it made it more possible for me to say, oh, okay, how does sovereignty work in my life individually? How do I need it? How does it work on a grander scale with people from not just America of different cultural, racial, gender, age backgrounds, but also across the whole world? Where do all these different ideas start to come together, have commonalities? How are they different? How do they not work? Not work, (laughs) haha. And I I raise these questions without an answer, for myself at least. I'm very much just still sort of living into this to say, well, we always look at myths and stories from our own lens and where we are in this moment, right? And I'm just always curious about... Who else might call in a totally different reading if they're coming from a different place, time, location, background, level of privilege?
1: Yes. And can we be open to that different perspective without it feeling like an attack on our view, which I think is what we see a lot today. People get really fused with the narrative they've created for themselves that's influenced by their background, their lineage, what they've seen, what they've experienced. And so when someone else comes in with a different vantage point, instead of viewing it as, oh, here's another thread to weave into the tapestry, it's viewed as, oh, you're trying to unravel my story. You're trying to Mm. invalidate me. And I think that is why maybe we're seeing so much divisiveness today. Mm. And so I, I take your point that we're all pretty much doing the best we can. And we're looking at things through our lens because we're humans and that's what we do. The challenge then is to build that muscle that allows us to remove our lens a little bit so that we can sneak someone else's in and try to see the world from their vantage point. And it doesn't mean that ours is wrong or bad or incorrect. It just means we're humans and we can hold conflicting ideas at the same time. We can witness opposing viewpoints and see the beauty and the terror in both, in all of them, Mm -hmm. and then try to make sense of all of it. But that takes work and it takes willingness. It takes acceptance and patience and things that don't necessarily come easily to us humans. And so we've got to put the work in. Yeah.
0: And things that don't allow us to show up looking especially certain in our next online conversation. This is a lot of that blurry, unknown, I'm still in process here, I'm not sure what I think yet. And that can be difficult in 2023 when we're trying to be teachers or guides or just anybody out in the world saying, hey, I'm not sure about this, I'm thinking
1: out loud here. Absolutely, that puts us in a very vulnerable position. So interesting because I have been talking a lot about vulnerability lately. I've explored it on my own podcast. It's been coming up with my clients, this idea that as our visibility increases, as we find or reclaim and use our voice, our vulnerability increases as well because we are putting ourselves out there. We're staking a claim. We're sharing what we believe and not everyone's going to dig that. And then we become vulnerable to verbal attacks. I mean, all you have to do is read the comment section of any Facebook post, and you're going to see an example of what what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So, how do we create space for that? How can we acknowledge the fact that, yes, we are putting ourselves in a vulnerable position when we do this, and it's necessary. It's vital. It's how we express who we are.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Without I mean, because the armor is necessary to walk into anywhere near the uh, the comment section. And we're supposed to be responsive and getting to know what other people are thinking. And yet, wait, not that much. And I've certainly witnessed that in myself. Of like, oh, yeah, if I stay just under the radar this much, I can keep it safe. Mm -hmm. And that puts an automatic lid on reaching that next level, reaching more people.
1: It does. And to your point, as a white woman of decent means, I have the privilege of stepping back, of of being quiet because mm-hmm. my identities are pretty much part of at least here, the, the majority, you know, and I think if, uh, if I did not hold those privileged positions, it wouldn't be as easy for me to kind of step back because it's not as visible. And so now we, now we get into all sorts of conversations around how privilege influences vulnerability. And, and again, it comes back to, are you willing to view the world through a lens that's not your own. Can you step back and allow your empathy and your awareness to put yourself in someone else's shoes? And then at the same time, not make assumptions that you think you know what someone else is thinking or feeling or doing because you're doing that. Like really going to the source and inviting people, if they're comfortable, to share their experience, their lived experience, and and to honor that. That's one of the reasons I love coaching so much is because I get to be in that position of receiving people's stories. Mm -hmm. And I always feel that it's such a gift. It's such an honor when someone chooses to share something with me, share something personal. It's like, I'm holding space for that. And that's sacred. That is such a gift. I don't take that lightly. And I think that if we can cultivate that in our world where we are more receptive to the stories and gifts of others, then that's... That's going to make us more empathetic, more connected. I mean, I, I just feel like that's the path to repairing some of these wounds that we've created in our society. Right. Well,
0: as you say, vulnerability is what's coming up in your work so much. For me right now, it's shape-shifting, has really been at mm-hmm. the core of so much of the work I'm doing. And that comes from, you know, the myths of most often women turning into a hare or a doe or a seal and then back again. And so that's kind of what the myths give us. But of course, we're all shapeshifters in all sorts of ways. You know, I look at my daughter up on stage becoming the wicked stepmother, becoming this ageless being. But as you're describing it, it's another way of the way we do shapeshifting, saying to put yourself in someone else's shoes is to do that alchemy and to say, wait, what if I drop as much as I can of my lens, my pretenses, my privileges, my assumptions, and try to stand in who they are, can I for a moment take on a new shape and see the world in a different way? Because that's always what's so fascinating to me, like that thought of being the hair, right? You're at that level of the grass and seeing the world. Does the sky look bigger? Do you feel the dampness of the grass just after dawn in a certain way? Yeah. And that's a wonderful, powerful exercise. And how does that help us begin to look at the world through the perspective of Our partners, of our children, of our clients, of people who are speaking of that privilege we have to say, we can turn, you know, we can shut the laptop and we can go into the security of our own homes that we, you know, are blessed to have. But that may not be happening two doors down. And that certainly isn't happening right now in Turkey where people are still dealing with the earthquake and all these. I mean, pick any of the things in this moment where your heart just stops and says, all their safety is gone. All of their concerns are about surviving into the next hours and days. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm so glad that you brought up this concept of shape-shifting. Like I had such a visceral reaction when you Mm -hmm. said that. And I think the key piece is what you said about the stories where the woman shape-shifts into the hair or the doe or the seal and then shifts back and i think that's the critical piece is the return to self mm-hmm. that it is possible for us to transform or transmute for a period of time but we can't stay there because that's not who we are mm-hmm. and when i think about the times in my life especially in my 20 my teens and 20s i was such a shapeshifter i was a chameleon i could be mm-hmm. whomever you needed me to be i would change everything about myself and i think it's the shadow side of one of my gifts, which is that I can walk into a room and I immediately sense the energy. I know what's happening. And I, I know what needs to be present in order for everyone else to feel okay. And for decades, I willingly accepted that role where I would walk into a room and I'd be like, what's needed. Okay, let me do that. And so I would shapeshift, but then I wouldn't always shape shift back. I would stay in that role because that's what other people needed. And then I would start to lose myself. Mm-hmm. And so I think that key piece of the shape shifting piece is knowing when to return to your original form.
0: Yes. Yes. So that it becomes a mark of your own empowerment and that sense of deepening your own experience of being alive and, and taking on a new viewpoint in order to be more sure. Of what you really think and be to be changeable. Because, of course, I means that this, I mean, this is why we love this work, right? It's that sense of how can this either be the ultimate goal or that old shadow from when we were young? It may be, be the same action done with a different energy because we are still called to be constantly changing and to be constantly adapting and moving through. And we're called to come back to that fundamental essential core of who we are and to keep discovering more about it and shoring it up, not so that it becomes some fossilized sense of this is me and I will stand here forever in my certainty, but to say, this is still me even as I shift and grow and learn more and call in new influences in order to discover what it is that I really know, what I really have faith in.
1: I love that because then the act of shape-shifting becomes not just about my role for others, our role for others, how we're perceived, but it's more about, no, what can I learn from this and how can I grow so that when I return to my original form, I'm better for it. I'm stronger. I'm wiser. I bring new skills and new understanding. And so the act of shape-shifting enriches me just as much, if not more so, than everyone else. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. What you
0: said too about walking into a room and recognizing that your empathy and your ability to tune in gives you that ability to be who the people in the room want or need you to be and how that's both a superpower and a potential problem. It makes me think of how Maeve never walked into a room and changed herself in order to suit the needs of the people who were sitting there waiting for her next word. Because she went in there with, you could say, an agenda, or you could say with an incredibly strong sense of self. And I think it's so interesting because it's why perhaps we look at Maeve and say, yeah, she is one hell of a badass heroine. I want to be her some of the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'd like to tap into that power when I need it, that sense of self that it just feels so unquestionable. She always knows who she is and what she believes and what she wants, and she's not afraid to go for it. That's so empowering. Like uh, you can feel the fire of that, Mm -hmm. but that fire can burn and it certainly burned her. And so then it's about how to manage that flame Mm -hmm. so that we do heat ourselves, heat the people around us, you know, provide that warmth without burning the entire place down. Yes. Yes.
0: Well, the way that I present Maeve in the stories that I told in the book is she stands for the queen, right? And this idea for me of sovereignty is that sense of free the princess, crown the queen, embrace the wise woman. Knowing that we need three, we always need to have access to all three of them at all stages of our lives. And that I think all of them inherently have both their shadow and their power that we can tap into and then we can heal. But it's so often that sense of, right, having that unmitigated queen power, which we know in our patriarchal culture would easily label as bitch or ball buster or all those other mm-hmm. things that, you know, is gets thrown at a strong woman and makes her unelectable. But having the sense of the princess who knows how to fall in love and knows how to lose herself in love, but then gets drawn back by the queen and by the wise woman who is the one who knows how to sit there with stillness and with a sense of humor to look at the whole big picture. I mean, that's certainly how I understand how to take these stories and say they're a blueprint for life some of the time. But it takes me back to what you were saying before about that idea of looking at the Cinderella story and looking at the sense of we're doing ourselves a disservice when we look to the wicked stepmother as being a singular stock character or that we say, oh, this is just a story about one princess being saved. It's so often the stories we read are about all of the characters in the story informing us about what it is to be part of the greater whole.
1: Yes. And I will say too, From a psychological perspective, it's understandable that we go to the binary. Mm -hmm. Our brains want to make sense of the world around us and categorize. And one of the easiest ways we can do that is by saying good or bad, right or wrong, yes or no. We tend to default to the binary, especially when we're under stress, because Mm -hmm. it's easy and our brain just needs to make sense of things. So we've got pure Cinderella and we've got the evil stepmother. We've got the good and the bad. And that makes sense to our brains on a very base level. It feels secure. We know with whom we want to identify and with whom we want to stay away. It takes much more nuance and courage to understand that it's not a binary, it's a spectrum. And we don't just fall on one part of that spectrum either. We're constantly moving on that spectrum. It's not a static thing. And so when we view it not as good or bad, but good and bad and everything in between and then some, and we can tap into that spectrum, sometimes we can do so with intention. Sometimes we do it out of a default, but we're on that spectrum at all times. But we always retain the power to move and to decide at what point on the spectrum do I want to be in this moment? What will serve me? What will serve the people around me? And then it's about, all right, what steps do I need to take in order to move in that direction?
0: Mm. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for anchoring us into, well, anchoring us into the spectrum and most impossible to, to pin down sort of wisdom. But as we start to close our conversation, I'm wondering if there's any other elements of the story that are present to you or anything else from our conversation that's really sort of still flickering that you might want to look to before we say farewell.
1: I will admit that when I read the story and then heard the story, the one-upsmanship, one-ups-personship of it really hit me because on a very personal level in my own marriage, there was a lot of that, particularly in the first 10 to 12 years. Mm. This idea that I had to prove something, I had to claim, especially because given the nature of my husband's military service, which is very hierarchical, there's a rank structure, etc. like he had his thing, but what about me? And I almost felt like I had to justify my career, my decision, myself. And I want to be clear, I didn't have to justify it to him, nor was he asking me to. I think it was this kind of larger social sense of just feeling like I have to prove my worth. I Mm -hmm. have to prove that I'm here. And I, I got that a bit in the first part of the story with Maeve about, hold on, I bring all this and I got this and I got this. And you know, like I came into this pretty good, mister. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I felt that. And it was only in the evolution of my marriage that I realized I don't need to prove. I don't need to come at this with this combative sense, especially because I know it's true and I can hold on to that truth. Yes. And I feel like we almost got no, I think we did get to that at the end of the story, especially with the deaths of the bulls and them coming together as equals. This idea that in relationships we do grow and we evolve individually but together too. And for me it was very much about releasing this impulse to prove. Mm -hmm. And I think, no, I know, I know. I am happier for it. My marriage is stronger for it. Yeah. And so it's finding that balance between asserting yourself and claiming your gifts Mm -hmm. and your strengths and your power, but not feeling like you have to wield that as a weapon against someone. And that's really that was the arc of the story for me. And and Mm -hmm. I just really felt that deeply reflecting on my own Partnership experience as well.
0: I can identify with that in so many ways, especially the coming down of recognizing like this isn't coming from him. It's coming Mm -hmm. from my own conditioning. It's Mm -hmm. coming from my own fears of, am I enough? It's coming from, are we living our marriage like our families did? Who's working more? Who's doing housework? All those little details that make up everyday happiness and eventually make up a marriage. And I just want to say, gratefully, it sounds like neither you nor I, with our Michael Patrick and Patrick Michael, were married to an aloe, because he, of course, instigated this whole thing by coming in and saying, hey, look at you, lady. And it is sort of actually the heartbreak of this story is that Maeve sort of deceived herself, because she wanted a man who was generous and was without jealousy or fear. And it, it was sort of contained in my brief ending of this that they slept well for a time. Eventually, jealousy did undo their marriage. And Maeve herself didn't meet a particularly wonderful end. You know, she, she ended up being murdered in her own bathtub. I know, it's very sad. We don't tell no, that Maeve. part of the story, right? No, we don't. <laughs> right, and is that the way in which there was that sort of taking down of a powerful woman? at the mm. end. You know, she <laughs> she's said to still be buried at Knocknaree in County Sligo, facing her home back in Roscommon, standing up at the top of a mountain, at, at, I mean, inside this beautiful cairn. So in many ways, she kind of is a tragic heroine for all of her power. She's given her comeuppance, perhaps, by the storytellers, by the redactors, by real life that says eventually, surprise ending, we're all gonna die someday. May we all do it encircled by our great-grandchildren, but that I always find it remarkable the way that we can find the empowering threads that let us see the best of our lives within stories that you turn the lens just a wee bit and you're like, well, I just meant to make sure we all understand that the underbelly of this one was not all power and bulls and happily ever after roses.
1: Mm Mm-mm. No, it's more of a happily for now. And then where do we go next? Yeah, exactly. And especially, you know, because one thing we didn't mention here was like
0: Maeve's sexuality is just off the charts stunning, right? Mm-hmm. And again, consider how much they would have probably pulled back the most scandalous bits. Yes. And and I guess you could also read the other way of maybe they would they have exaggerated that in order to make her some sort of wanton villainess. I think we can certainly stand here in the 21st century and say, this is pretty cool. It's a sex positive story that says they have an open marriage and it's working for them, right? Yes. And and it gives you that opportunity to just sort of be with that level of deep and voracious sexuality as part of her character without shame. Mm -hmm. And that's another really, I think I'm, I'm excited we get to land on this part, perhaps, of Maeve without shame is such a powerful force.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. We could do an entire another episode just on that. But I do, I think you're right. I think there's a reclamation of power of all sorts, including sexual power and how her mm-hmm. sexuality fuels that. Oh my gosh. Yes. I know. A thousand times. Yes.
0: So your yes, a thousand times. Yes. Right there. That's like the end of Ulysses, right? When, yeah, that, yeah. There's a classic Irish novel that ends with a woman's orgasm. There you go. And there's a lot of ways in which Maeve and Molly Bloom have things in common. <gasps> oh, well, moving from that onto you and your work and how people continue to find you and your wisdom, um, because
1: you have so much to offer
0: that I love people to get to know your work better.
1: Oh, well, thank you. So my full-time job is as the... CEO of Coach with Clarity, which is a coach training and education company for intuitive, creative professionals who are looking to leverage their existing experience into a sustainable coaching career. So you can learn more about that at coachwithclarity.com. I also host the Coach with Clarity podcast, where we explore the business and the art of coaching. And lately on that show, we've been doing a lot of work around voice and vulnerability and success and failure. And so... Threads of our conversation today have actually been kind of woven into the podcast as well. So um, particularly if you're interested in coaching, that might be a fun show to check out. And if you are interested in exploring the entwining of meaning, mindset, and mindfulness and how we can live full, rich lives by embracing those three Ms, then my book, Act on Your Business might be of interest to you as well. That's available on Amazon, paperback and Kindle, and you can get a free chapter at coachwithclarity.com slash act.
0: Brilliantly. Thank you so much for providing that with such brilliant clarity. That is exactly who you are.
1: And it's why I love
0: talking to you so much.
1: Oh, I have so enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in
0: to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through Season 3 and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub. Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagoudi.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.